Owens in the 1936 Olympics where he won four gold medals. And in one scene that the track team, who consists of both black and white players from his college, the, the track team are, are, are trying to, you know, do their thing and they're getting dressed in the dressing room and their coach, Larry Snyder, is kind of admonishing Owens for losing focus when he's out doing hurdles because of the football team, the Caucasian football team, who are throwing these horrible racial slurs at, at, at Owens. And I want to show you this scene. I just want to give you a heads up. It's got uh, some pretty strong and even offensive language in the scene. So just plug your ears or ignore those parts. But let's, uh, let's watch this clip. Now we're going to keep working on that over and over. you got to stay low all the way through the hurdle, OK? Wow, the great Jesse Owens. Jesse, let's get back to basics. Why don't you swing from those bamboo poles over there, boy? That's right, Chickaboos. Let's see you hanging out those cars. Hey, Jesse, get set. Come on. Nothing to do with It's just like getting back in the jungle, huh? Come on, boy. Yeah, do it. Swing. One more thing. Jesse, you want to tell me what was so interesting about the goddamn football team? I don't know, Coach. I just got distracted. Oh, you got distracted. See, that's what I'm talking about. You can't get distracted. You understand? All right, Larry. Finish this up now. I got boys who need a shower. Yeah, one sec, Coach. I'm not quite through yet. Sit down. Larry, Everybody sit down. Up. Sit down. Larry, hustle these niggas out of here. Yeah. yeah get them out. Get them out. You get your head turned by a few gorillas and warm-up pads here at home. What? How you gonna hold up the mission? Who the hell is he calling gorillas? Coach, Coach Snyder. Say, hey, look at me. Coach Snyder. A lot of people show up for the He's Big Ten meeting. Coach Snyder! Not all of you gonna be on our side. You understand what that is? Do you? You gotta learn to block it all out. It's just noise. That's all this is. All this noise. You hear me? They will love you or they will hate you. Does not matter. It's either way, when you're out there, you're on your own. Jesse, Jeffrey, do you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, Coach, I hear you. Good. All right, come on, let's go. You heard coach, they need the locker room. Right. Come on, move it, go! Jesus Christ, man. In the middle of all that chaos in that scene, Jesse Owens is going through, his, his coach said some pretty profound words. You gotta learn to block it all out. It's just noise. That's all it is. It's, it's just noise. They'll love you or they'll hate you. It doesn't matter. You can't get distracted, you understand? He says, you hear me? You hear me? And uh, when, I, when I first saw this film and I saw that scene, it was like God was speaking right to me. It was like he was trying to get my attention. Because around my life is often chaotic and noise and distractions and fears. And in this, in this scene, this coach was kind of like God to me. Block it all out. The world will love you or hate you. That doesn't matter. That's not what your identity is based on. Look at me. Do you hear me? Do you hear my voice? Do you hear my voice? And Jesse, I, I love the end of that scene where Jesse's able to find himself reorientated in the voice of his coach. I hear you, coach. I hear you. And, and, and quite honestly, I, I think that's what the Psalms do for us. 
In fact, I think that's one of the ways Psalm 23 serves us. It's a voice calling us back. Now, we're in, the, in this uh, series this summer in the Psalms, and, and today we're going to spend time in, in Psalm 23, what is arguably the most beloved psalm of them all. But it's also a psalm that was written most certainly as, as inoculated as the words have, bec- have come to us in some ways. It was written to David in what was certainly a time of the valley of the shadow of death, a season of, of great difficulty. And, and what we see in Psalm 23 is we see Saul, David getting reorientated, David coming back to the center, David finding God in the midst of trouble and upheaval and danger and enemies. And, and surprisingly, it's a psalm where we find this, in the midst of all that, this beautiful theme of rest. Now, there's another psalm where David is in danger. It's actually Psalm 58, I believe, Psalm 55. And David's response in Psalm 55 is very different than Psalm 23. Psalm, 20, Psalm 55, you might call an escape psalm. Let, let me read you just a portion. He says, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. I'd flee far away and stay in the desert. I'd hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. I don't know about you, but I've been there, <laughs> where, where my, my big prayer to God was, uh, beam me up, Scotty. I want away from this. I want out of this. This is ugly. This is awful. But, but I think Psalm 23 is so loved because we're sensing this capacity of, of David to be going through the worst of times, but he's able to endure it because he knows God is there. God's at the center. Let's read this uh, psalm together, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. So the context of this psalm is very likely uh, dark valleys or, or wilderness, David in the wilderness, and he's speaking to a people that are in the wilderness. We, we all kind of know what it's like to be in the wilderness. We all kind of know what it's like to be thirsty and to be dry and to be parched or to be in trouble or to be in that place where we need God. David, David he begins his psalm uh, when he's thinking about this in a very interesting way, introducing God by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, what's interesting about that is that was what David was. These are David's beginnings. He was a, a shepherd. Uh, David, shepherding, you, you might, might or might not know this, shepherding in that day was not an esteemed role in society. It was a despised job. I mean, people looked down on shepherds. But shepherding was part of Israel, the people of God's roots. This is where they came from. In fact, if you go back to to Joseph in, in Egypt, and Jacob, his father, and, and his brothers come, and, and, and Joseph 
kind of apologizes to the Egyptians for his family of shepherds because to be a shepherd was a despicable thing to the Egyptians. And so they gave him a piece of land of Goshen off, kind of off by themselves a little bit. Kenneth Bailey, a um, renowned Bible scholar, he uh, talks about in the centuries that the scriptures were written how shepherding was an unclean trade. And shepherds were at the margins of society. So the Lord is my shepherd? <laughs> that the Lord would, would dare to associate himself, associate his identity with the unclean. Um, author Mark Buchanan, he put it this way, he said, shepherds did for rich people what rich people didn't want to do for themselves. The shepherds were like the trash cleaners of the day. And the Lord is that thing that I need, but I don't want to get my hands dirty around it. David was a shepherd. David, David knew what it was like to be forgotten. He knew what it was like to be shuffled off to the fields while his, uh, his brothers, his big brothers, got to do the great work. I mean, his brothers, David's brothers, were sent off to, to fight battles and to serve the king. And David is sent off to the sheep fields doing the, the menial job, you know, <laughs> forgotten. And David's saying, God is that for me. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's interesting, David would never actually renounce the, the shepherd role, even when he became king. It's one, uh, one psalm, Psalm 78, kind of celebrated the life of David. And it kind of, the psalm goes over the history of Israel up to that point, And it ends with this, this David's rise to kingship. And this is what it says. It says, God chose David, his servant, and raised him up from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Israel. David never kind of lost his heart for shepherding. Um, think about it. Uh, many of you would know that David's biggest blunder was Bathsheba. We're talking adultery and murder and, and cover-up. It's horrible. And Nathan the prophet comes to uh, confront David on this. And, and what does Nathan do to get David's attention? He tells a sheep story, right? And David's like, yeah, what happened next? And at the end, when there's been some injustice to this poor sheep farmer, he's like, what can be done for that man? You know, he's, he's, he's so upset. He was a sucker for a sheep story. And then uh, Jesus comes. And it ought to shock us in light of all these cultural ideas around sheep and shepherding. In John, John 10, Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd. <laughs> you want to know what God's like? He's like me. He's like a shepherd. And it's not an exalted title. It's a, a humble title. God is a shepherd. And it reminds us that God dares to go to the margins, to go to the unclean things, the menial things. I got a chance a few weeks ago, Angel and I were we're serving at Barnabas Family Ministries over on Keats Island, and we were village hosts. And uh, our job every afternoon was to hang out at the general store and eat ice cream. Yes, it was a rough job. Actually, we were there to welcome guests, and I thought we'd look more welcoming with ice cream in our hands, right? And, and uh, part of my job specifically was I was there to offer island guests the opportunity if they wanted to take a tour of Barnabas and their property. And uh, many took me up on that offer, and there were 
uh, right beside the general store is their farm, and they have sheep on the farm. And so I got to go and interact with sheep up close, and, and we'd go and feed them oats from our hands. And I got to say, just an observation here, sheep are not pretty. I mean, lambs are cuddly. You know, sheep are not. They're not cuddly animals. They actually are kind of jittery and jumpy. You, you move quick and they're, ah, they freak out on you. They're, yeah, they don't quite raise their hands, do they? But they're somewhat charismatic. Um, but they smell and they stink. They're stubborn animals. <laughs> it is not at all. You know, you begin to realize why this was a despised role in, in that day. And so it's not a flattering designation for the people of God to be called sheep. But it's also not a flattering designation for God to be called shepherd. And again, David never downplayed the fact that he used to be a shepherd, that he had this kind of grubby job as part of his resume. Rather, shepherding seemed to be at the core of, of, of his thinking about who he was. And, and, and what's fascinating about this is, is his whole vocational identity becomes a lens for his theology. Let, let me put this a, a, another way. He understands God through his work. And, and I would say this morning that this would be different for, for all of us, of course. The Lord is my builder. The Lord is my framer. The Lord is my janitor. The Lord is my nurse. The Lord is my police officer. The Lord is my teacher. I mean, who, who nurses the nurse? Who who teaches the teacher? How about the, the Lord is my programmer? We have a lot of computer programmers or what do we call you? Software engineers is the more exalted title, I believe. Uh, all kinds of titles for you computer junkies, uh, computer scientists. And we have a number of you here. But think about it. Just what does a computer programmer do? Kind of takes zeros and ones and makes them interesting, right? <laughs> Somehow, like, like, takes zeros and ones, takes what in my mind looks like chaos when you look at code, and turns it into something that's beautiful on the screen. I mean, we have a, an animator here at Hillside who, who can take animals and make them live, I mean, on screen. And they're, they're, just, they're just pixels. Un unbelievable, the things that, that programmers can do. And, and, and we interact with it all the time, but it, it, when we watch movies and we play video games and when, it, when we turn on our on, online anything, our smartphone or tablet, it, it's all because some person is sitting at a keyboard crafting and paint, doing paint, making painstaking effort and, and detailed work to, to bring this art to life for the rest of us. It's a beautiful thing. And, and it makes me wonder... What would it mean to a programmer to say, the Lord is my programmer? I wouldn't know. Only a programmer would know. And it's kind of beautiful, I think. Pick about just any job, your job, and I think there'd be very few vocations where you wouldn't find something interesting, some kind of understanding about the character of God through that job. I've pastored for... Uh, a long time, it seems now. And I've discovered this because um, no one really pastors a pastor. And oftentimes people don't know what pastors do. I, I, I get teased by my f 
friends often who don't go to church, like, what's it like to just work two hours a week? You know, Sunday mornings, that's it. Uh, that's why I love meeting other pastors. I was having a conversation this week with a, a friend who's a pastor, and there's shorthand between us because we get each other. We know the role. I don't have to explain. And so it's really helpful to me that David was taking this, this shepherding role that he understood it, stood so well, and it was helping him understand who God was. And it helped David get back to the center to, to understand God through his day job. He understands that, that what he has done for stupid, smelly, stubborn sheep, God does for him. And so it can be centering for me to say, the Lord is my pastor. That, that thing that I do imperfectly, I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty flawed pastor. I, I feel like I just kind of bumble along in this profession. But I do kind of get the role. Even though I don't execute it perfectly, I, I do get the role. And here's the thing. The Lord is my pastor, and he executes it perfectly. And I can understand and relate to him through that understanding. And that, this, I think, helps all of us, because guess what? You will spend most of your, job, most of your life in a day job of some kind. Uh, the myth of the eight-hour work week, the eight-hour work day is gone, I think. Most of us spend more than eight hours a day doing our work. And, you're, and I, can I say this, most of our spiritual formation, most of the ways in which we will grow in our relationship with God will happen in our work and in our workplace. That's good news for us, I think. And so if you want to understand God in the depths, try to understand him through your vocational calling. I, I have a sense that this is something that some of you ought to spend a lot of time chewing on. That God, what does God do for you that, that no one does for you. Or, or what, pardon me, what is that thing that you do for others that no one really does for you? God does those things. Well, that's just phrase one. Second line, I shall not want or I lack nothing. Kind of says the same thing. So it's, I'd say it's accurate to say the Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. I, I think that line is one of the most powerful combinations in the human language because the lord is my shepherd i have all i need and you know one of the ways we can self-diagnose that we are living under the watchful loving caring presence of god is is that we both know that you have all you need but you also feel like you have all you need the, the craving and the grasping and the coveting, these all, all go down. These all kind of wither. There's this sense of satisfaction. Because here's the thing. You can have all you need, but not feel like you have all you need, right? I, I think this uh, kind of helps us understand the story at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 where you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, and they have all they need. They have everything. I mean, you got hot wife supposedly hot husband, I don't know, uh, they're naked, they're, God is walking with them, the description is, in the cool of the day, they're having this intimacy with God, they, they have everything that they need, they eat anything they want, almost, but they don't feel that way, they have this sense of scarcity, I need more, I mean, isn't... Isn't that a picture of our culture right now? I mean, isn't that where we live? It's not that we lack anything. We just 
think that we lack something. Scarcity, we want stuff. And so it's not, and it's not just about taking an inventory of your life and, and saying I've got enough, but rather the question is, is there a deep satisfaction at the very depth of my soul where, where you truly don't need anything anymore? I shall not want. One, one of my favorite uh, characters in Scripture is Caleb. Uh, Caleb, we actually like that character so much that we named our son Caleb. His, his name means bold for God. I think it's a good name. We wish that for our son. But he's this, this guy who, who uh, when the Israelites were in the uh, desert and they were on their way to the promised land, he's one of 12 spies that are sent into the promised land to, to see this land that God is giving them. And to, what they see when they get there is unbelievable abundance. They come back saying it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And more than enough. But, but scarcity thinking has kind of got under the skin of, of ten of these spies. God isn't, God isn't enough to give us this. There's trouble. There's obstacles. There's, there's dangers. God's presence isn't enough. And so they turn to the other Israelites and they begin to spread doubt. But Joshua and Caleb are the ones that are saying God is enough. We can do it. I love how later on in Caleb's life, he recites this story to Joshua himself in Joshua 14. He says, and I brought Joshua back a report according to my convictions, like convictions that we can take the land, but my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. And uh, one of my favorite stories of Caleb is late in his life, it, uh, it's, it, he's in his 80s. He's 85 years old, we're told, in this particular passage of Joshua 14. Who says life stops at 80? Well, last week's preacher did, basically. He said, you only live to your 80. You're 80, maybe that's the most you got. So we were, I was trying to encourage you 80-plus-year-olds at the door last week that there's still some life left in you. We're encouraged by that. But now, by now, at 85, Caleb and, and the rest of the Israelites have been in the, the promised land for some time. And Caleb, at 85, is saying this audacious, really it's a, a prayer, but it's an audacious request to Joshua, give me the hill country. What is this unconquered, wild desert land? And it's, it's not at all desirable. There's a picture of what that hill country, the Judean wilderness, looks like. By the way, this would have been the same wilderness that Jesus would have gone out to when he was tested for 40 days in the wilderness. This is that wilderness, same place. But here's, Jesus, here's Joshua saying, I want that. Give me the tough assignment. He's not wanting retirement. He's not wanting the easy, easy job. Give me the unfinished business. I'm strong. He's this old guy. And, and pretty much every time in Scripture, I think all but one, when Caleb is mentioned, you know what's associated with his name is his being wholehearted for God. Do you know what wholehearted means? God fills me up. Wholehearted. There's no, there's no part of my life that God does not satisfy. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything I need and I actually don't have the craving for anything else. Because I have this abundance mentality, not a scarcity mentality. Why does this matter so much? Um, three or four years ago, uh, a, Harvard, a couple of Harvard researchers wrote a book called Scarcity. 
And they've done this massive global study of what happens to people when they have scarcity thinking. And what they found is that people with scarcity thinking, it plays into every part of your life. It begins to kind of infiltrate. And what happens is you, you begin to grow to be more paranoid. You become frightened. You have worst-case scenario thinking. You, you wither up. You kind of you close in on yourselves. You, you stop taking risks. You stop feeling free. You stop enjoying life. And then what they did was they, they did it with the opposite. What, what happened with people with abundance thinking. And, and funny, it was the same conditions. I mean, they, they, they looked at poor farmers in Kenya. And, but they found that there were, these people were flourishing in the same set of circumstances as the scarcity thinkers. The only difference was their mentality. So what happens, what happens back in the garden again is, is this couple has everything they could possibly want you know, anything you want to eat, everything but one thing. And, and the devil comes and says, isn't God being stingy? You know, you, you know he's kept that from you. And something in them says, yeah, you're right. It's not enough. And I, I don't know, you can track this in your life. I can track this in my life. There's always kind of that place in my life of not enoughness, I think. It's often there. I often get kind of greedy and grumpy. And, and dissatisfaction in one area of our lives can lead to dissatisfaction in other parts of our lives. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's like a diagnostic phrase for me. Derwin, are you satisfied in God? Are you centered? Is your life centered in God? Or am I wandering around straying from what is meant to be the center of my life and you need to find your life again, coming back to the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus. Um, by the way, we see this as Jesus in the desert. Great. I wish we had more time to dwell there for a minute. But his 40 days in the wilderness, you know. And by the way, someone observed to me that, that the devil often wants to meet us in two places. In gardens and deserts. Right? Doesn't he do that? I mean, you're most vulnerable, actually, when, when things are at their bottom, and you're most vulnerable when things are at the top. When, when, when life is going really well, we, we have a tendency to just walk away from God. And when things are at the bottom, we tend to want to throw in the towel. We can be vulnerable there. But it seems to me that we are more vulnerable in gardens than we are in deserts. I, I, I think that's, that's true. But here's Jesus, um, you know. And, and I think in, in actual conditions of scarcity sometimes, I, I think of my experience of going to, to parts of the world that are what we would look at as being impoverished physically, and yet they're experiencing a, a, an abundance of spirit. My experience in, in, in Zambia and, and Kenya and other places. But like Jesus in the desert, he's going 20, 40 days without food, and the devil comes to him, tempting with food, and his response is what? Man does not live by bread alone. Later on, he would say to a woman, to his disciples, he'd say, my food is, is to do the will of him who sent me. God fills me up, Jesus says. And I think God will occasionally allow for there to be a wilderness in our lives so that that's, this will be at work in us. In the desert, we will often discover that God is enough. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down 
I love this. All, all the, the, the language of the opening verses of Psalm 23 are leadership language. He makes, he, he, he leads, he guides, he restores. These are all the kind of things that leaders are drawn to. Leaders, you know, work this out, gravitate toward this. I lead this, I make this. And if you look at the way it's used here in this passage, the Lord is always the subject. The initiative is always God's. And if you look at the object, it's always us. And, and you look at these verbs and you look at what completes the sentence. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me on the path that actually makes me right. You know what this tells us? That the leadership of God in our lives is primarily one of slowing us down, quieting our souls. I, I need you quiet, still. I need you open. I need you attentive. I need to, I need to pour into you. I need to do things in you that you cannot do for yourself. I need to restore you. I need to, I need to get you right. I need to get you well. I want to heal you. I, I love the first, I'm going to make you lie down. The difference between kids and adults here, right? Well-known observation. Kids, you know, they protest when you tell them to go take a nap. And, and some of you are just dying for someone to tell you to go take a nap. Go lie down. You'd kill for that. And, it, and it's beautiful coming from God. Because God knows that apart from him, we really won't know rest. We really won't know rest. The same invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. But God says, the first thing I want to do is make you quiet. I, I want to sing over you with my love. I want to speak the words that, that Jesus says that, that the Father has been speaking to me. You're my beloved. You're my child. You're my daughter. How I'm pleased with you. I want you to start living out of that. Again, I, I like the shepherd language that David uses here because he's seeing his God and his life through what has been his shepherding career. And he's like thinking, what is God doing in me that I used to do for my sheep? You know, caring for their needs, quieting the sheep nursing them, tending their wounds. It's in those places by, by quiet waters and green pastures that we learn some important things. What do, we, what, what do sheep learn in those places? They learn they can trust the shepherd. They learn, hey, hey if I pay attention to the shepherd's voice, I, I actually get fed, I actually get cared for, I actually get healed, all those kind of things. And it, it's kind of important to discover that because more than anything, you need to Discover and trust the voice of the shepherd when you're in the dark, when you're in the darkest valley. The, the vision really is of a, of a shepherd who so pours into his sheep because if that relationship is not there, when you get into that place, we get into that, that dark valley, the, the sheep are just going to freak out. They're going to flee. They're going to scatter. But if they've experienced his voice, as Jesus said, my sheep know me and they know my voice, then they can go into that place and it might be filled with danger or threats or trouble or wolves or bears or precipitous paths, but they don't need to be afraid there because they know, they look and they see, my shepherd is there with me. God's there. 
And so then you can have this line, this kind of centerpiece to this psalm, even though I walk through the valley. I, I, I don't know about you. I don't think I can look back on my life and think of one time where there wasn't some even though in my life. Where, where there wasn't something that wasn't entirely right. Something that wasn't what I wished it would have been. Um, and I, I mean, I, I've had some great seasons in my life, but even in the greatest times, I, I can look and even though, there were even though moments there, there were, even, there were but moments there. And, and, and sometimes I, I think we get a stock of even those. Like I said a few weeks ago, my son who says, why is this always happening to me? Even though I'm walking through this and it's very dark. Think about it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though that, you are with me. Um, Angel pointed out, so this grammatical shift that, that happened in Psalm 18, and the same shift happens in, in Psalm 23 this week. Right in the middle of the psalm, it's kind of extraordinary. David, when he's reflecting on the watch care of God, he's, he's actually doing it in kind of third person. You know, he's, he's describing God in, you know, by the still waters and leading me and all those kind of things. He, he, he. But when he experiences God in the valley of the shadow of death, the language shifts from third person to first person. You are, you are, you are. You're with me. It's the difference about talking about someone you love who's not there, you know? My husband this, my, my child this, to actually speaking to them. You. And this is the, the power of this psalm, is this, this sudden shift in parts of, of, of speech from really what you'd call theology to prayer. From reflection on God or about God to intimacy, intimacy with God. From I can, I can say all these things about God, but actually when I'm in trouble I turn to you and I'm so glad you're here. question is, how might we get to that place? <laughs> where we can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. How can we get there? I think part of the answer, maybe a major part of the answer, is through rest. I told you this psalm is just this beautiful theme of rest, this invitation to rest, but not just to rest, not just to nap, not just to take leisure, but to actually rest in God. I'd say much of our rest is not restful. You know that whole idea of you need a vacation from your vacation? Anybody ever experienced that? Like it just was great, but it wasn't restful? But we need to, Sabbath is actually a practice where we're to learn to rest. And I've been tinkering this in my own life for years, trying to make sure that my Sabbath day is not just a day off for chores and leisure, but that somehow my Sabbath day is orientated towards God. In, in a major way. You know, we rest in our Sabbath in the presence of God. We rest in the goodness of God. The abundance of God. And out of that overflow with the encounter of God, we're equipped to face our even those. Some of you have been in some particularly difficult even those. And I want to suggest to you that God wants to come to you and, and lead you beside some still waters and, and green pastures, and God wants to pour into you 
He wants to refresh you and restore you. And it'd be great if you left this morning and your even those were gone. Wouldn't that be great? If uh, they would just be whisked out of there. But you know what? For most of us, our even those will be there waiting for us when we leave this place, when, when we get to our homes. But when we come out of resting in God, what's, what's different is not the situation, but it's, it's you and your sense of, you're with me in this. I don't need to be afraid. A couple of other points I want to just make, just real quick. David then names all the things that God does for us in the valley. I mean, it's interesting what God does there. He, he places a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You hear that? The, the even though is still there, and you're feasting in the midst of it. You're enjoying a meal with God. Uh, he provides protection, the rod, what the shepherd used to beat off things. The staff, he's providing guidance for us. He provides a sense of, of calling on our lives, anointing our heads with oil, setting, apart, setting us apart for himself. He provides abundance. I love this line, my cup overflows. Mostly what he provides there is his presence. You, you, you. One last thing is how it, it ends. It feels kind of like a neat little bow in the end, this whole surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, right? And, and you kind of almost, uh, sometimes I tune out when I get to that particular line, but I, I, it's actually a very powerful line. Because here's the thing, when you have a sense of scarcity in your life, you fear what's chasing you and you fear what's waiting for you. you, you what's behind you and what's in front of you. Surely, Shame and pain is following me. I'm a, I'm a soft, wide target for bad luck. And surely what is coming ahead is ruin and disaster. And, and David, when he gets to this place where he's saying, sure, all this stuff is going on, but surely the stuff that is chasing me is, God, is goodness and love. God is pursuing me relentlessly with his passionate love and mercy. And, he begins, and then what awaits me is the house of the Lord forever. Which means that, that God's larger story is what waits for you. Your, your story is not defined by all the junk that's going on right now. Your story is that better story that, that he wants to remind you that you're a part of. And what waits for you is, is being part of God's story forever. It's helpful to measure. If there's anxiety about what is behind and about what's coming, I've moved from my center. And this is a recentering psalm. As this was used in David's life, I, I think God wants to use it in our life. How about you this morning? Just want to end with some time of reflection. So if you haven't closed your eyes already, you nappers, why don't you close your eyes for a minute and let me ask you some reflective questions that you can ask of yourself, just you and the Lord right now. Let me ask you, in what ways might God be wanting to give you a deeper understanding of who he is through what has been your vocation? Whatever it might have been. In what ways might you see God through that?
Let me ask you, are you in that place where you have all you need and you feel it? You have this, this growing and, and deepening sense of satisfaction in God? Where in your life do you feel a sense of scarcity right now? Which, is, which would you say is winning in your heart right now? Scarcity or abundance? Are you hearing this morning God's invitation to you to rest? Green pastures, still waters, slow, quiet. Getting to the place where you just allow God to do in you what he can only do. Restore and refresh you. I just sensed uh, Jesus saying to all of us this morning, come away with me to a quiet place. Rest in me. Let me pour into you. Let me refresh you. Let me restore you. I'm the one who makes all things new. Do you hear his invitation to rest? What are your even those right now? I sense God wanting to meet you in those places where things aren't quite right, where there's a lack. And he wants to become very personal with you. He wants to turn what you believe about God, your theology, into intimacy. This is uh, where God has kept on putting his finger on my heart this week. As, I, as a pastor, I talk a lot about God. The Lord is my shepherd. And I, I hear God's invitation into a far more personal relationship with him. Where it's you, 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 God. I won't be afraid, for you are with me. I invite the team up. Let's, let's pray, though. Spirit of God, uh, this morning, we're grateful that you are our shepherd. That in you we lack nothing. That, that truly, God, you are the one who can satisfy our souls. Lord, in you we have an abundance and the table is filled. Father, forgive us for where we are not satisfied in this. This is like the original sin. And we're just right there, God, so often discontent, so often grasping, coveting, reaching. Help us to find ourselves in you. Lord, you want to you do all kinds of wonderful things in our lives. You want to pour into us all these good things that we've been 
talking about, Lord, would you do that in us? Would you restore us and refresh us and, and cause us to, to walk on right paths for our lives, Lord? Would you quiet us so that we will be able to walk through whatever valley we're going through right now in the confident knowledge of your presence and your love? Help us, Lord, to know that what follows behind and what waits ahead is, is all good. It's your love. You're pursuing us with those things. Awaken us to that this morning. In the days ahead, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.